This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Trinity, it is good to be with you again the last two weeks. Uh, Kyle has been faithfully preaching through uh, Ephesians, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, and the last two weeks, I have been traveling in the States. The first half was kind of vacation. I was able to baptize my niece uh, at a church in Philadelphia, and that was very special uh, for me. And then the second half, I actually got to visit one of the supporting churches of our church planting movement down here. And so if you, if you don't know, we have two church plants, one in Caguas and then one kind of on the east side of, of San Juan over here, um, Spanish-speaking, uh, P- Puerto Rican-led uh, church plants that it we love supporting as Trinity Church. And then part of my job is also helping them find funding outside of us. And so there is a, a church in the Midwest that has been supporting us for three and a half years towards this end, uh, and they were uh, rejoicing to hear about this work that is going on in Puerto Rico, that these churches are growing and strengthening, and they were happy to be a part of it. So it was my pleasure to be there. Um, Kyle, last week, though, talked about being imitators of God. And he said that we needed to be holy, wise, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you think being filled with the Holy Spirit means? What do you think it looks like? One month ago at Asbury University, a chapel service started that didn't stop for two weeks. Right now it's being called an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not here to give my hot take or two cents about whether or not this is a revival or an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm just wondering if you might have the same questions I do when you read things like this. Did I miss it? Did I miss it? Isn't there a piece of you that longs for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your own life? Something that would finally remove all of the addiction, sin, hard-heartedness, and doubts that you have? That this outpouring of the Holy Spirit might cause you to make uh, radical changes in your life and, and, and fortify your faith in profound ways. And maybe you've experienced something like this, outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And in these moments, you were able to make some especially profound changes in your life and faith. And again, I don't want to cast doubt or malign the testimony of fellow believers, but I do want to ask, what happens when the moment has passed? What happens when you go back home, when the semester ends, when you get a job, you get married and you have kids? How are we supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit all of the time, as Paul seems to say that we're, we're, we're supposed to do? Is this even possible? God often uses unassuming, normal, regular rhythms of life to work to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Although God on a handful of occasions speaks through fire from heaven, through clouds, and through earthquakes, we can read this in his scripture, we would be mistaken if we thought that this was God's normal operation in the world. We would also be mistaken if we thought that uh, those forms of communication by God were somehow more important to uh, the people he was speaking to than his uh, regular and more unassuming means of communicating with us. Anytime God communicates with us, it is profoundly important. For the next three weeks, we're actually going to be looking at what Paul uh, seems to believe are the areas in our lives where we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to be looking at marriage. Next week, we're going to be looking at parenting. And the week after, we're going to be looking at our work life. These are just three examples that don't necessarily apply to all of us. Um, Although we are all children, uh, not all of us have uh, relationships with our parents in the ways that he's going to discuss. Um, maybe not all of us can work anymore, and not all of us certainly are married. 
And yet Paul's examples in these moments are to say, being filled with the Holy Spirit happens in every part of your life. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is indeed something that you're supposed to do all of the time and everywhere. I'm going to be honest with you, though, the passage that we're going to read this morning, in many ways, I would prefer not to preach. I don't know if you've looked ahead. The third verse we will read today says, wives, submit to your own husbands. It is arguably one of the more controversial moral instructions from the Bible to our modern ears. And although personally, I might prefer to avoid it, as a pastor, I do feel burdened to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And as one pastor has said, I feel the burden to say something rather than nothing. And actually, here's just a, a side note uh, about churches and controversial passages. There's kind of uh, two tendencies that we tend to have. If you're ever looking for other churches or you're kind of exploring what to look for. Um, many of our evangelical churches uh, in America right now preach uh, by, by far what is most uh, common to practice. They preach topically. Uh, they don't necessarily preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And so uh, it's not that it's wrong that they're bad uh, preachers of God's Word or that they're mishandling the Word of God in any way. Uh, this is a fine way to preach. In fact, we do this during Advent and cer during certain uh, seasons of our church calendar. Yet the tendency in topical preaching is for the human heart to avoid those things that are most controversial. Oh, that's just going to take too long to say. I'm just not going to do it. Beware of that tendency of churches of our own human hearts, of all of us to kind of go, ooh, this, this is a tough passage of the Bible. I'll just skip a few pages. I'll go to where it seems nicer. But there's an uh, equally uh, t t temptation, uh, an equal temptation on the other side of pastors and churches who only preach on the controversial passages of Scripture. In this way, sometimes we feel like they're giving us the whole counsel of the Word of God, but I, I tend to see that more often than not in those moments, uh, it's more of the pastor's hot take, they're kind of shooting from the hip, than they are willing to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Just two warnings there, it's just an aside. I'm going to come back over here. I'd like to do my best to explain what this passage does and doesn't mean, but there is no way I'm going to answer all of your questions in the next 30 or so minutes. There's, just, there's no way that's going to happen. To alleviate some of this, uh, what we've done is we've actually reserved a room upstairs. If you, if you like leave this door and you turn to the right right there, there's a stairwell. And you go all the way up the stairs, we've got two classrooms up here. So you're gonna go all the way up to the top and that classroom over there, after the service for about 30, 40 minutes, I would love to answer any questions that you have and just a little bit more um, intimate atmosphere uh, so you don't have to feel like, like right here you have to stand up and like shout your question. That's just not gonna work well for our format of church service, you know? Um, but after service, if you do have any questions, if you are unable to join us for this after service um, and, and you still have questions, please do not hesitate to reach out. My contact information is in the bulletin. Uh, it is my job and my passion uh, to walk with people through God's Word, and I would love to walk with you in your questions about this passage. Okay, there's a lot of prefatory comments, but now we're going to stand and we're going to read God's Word. So if you would, please stand for God's Word. This comes from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, then I'm going to skip to verse 21 and go through 33, starting in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So one of the first things we need to notice about this passage is that it's given in a particular context. And if you haven't been here for the rest of our sermon series, I would uh, encourage you uh, to maybe go back and listen uh, to, to Kyle's sermons the last couple of weeks, because the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five help qualify what we're about to hear in very important ways. So I just want to remind you some of the things that Paul talked about in these passages. He said that all Christians, married or unmarried, male or female, old or a child, all Christians, should be people who live in the truth. They should be people who get angry without sin. There should be no theft, corrupting talk, bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, malice. It says all Christians are supposed to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. These are important context clues to our passage. I'm just going to, anytime we've got controversial passages in Scripture, read a little bit more broader. Read everything surrounding it, because we learn some things right away. First, all authority is derivative from God's ultimate authority. Submission cannot mean submitting to those things that God prohibits or a failure to do what he commands. If you remember what we just read in our catechism question up here, that applies to everyone. Submission cannot mean that. Submission cannot mean submitting to those things that God prohibits, doing those things that God prohibits, or a failure to do what he commands. Second, submission cannot mean submitting to abuse. Abuse, which is such a basic failure of of basic Christian principles. All forms of abuse would betray all the things that I just mentioned, plus everything that's said elsewhere in Scripture. Let's just look at the, the the most immediate context, corrupting talk. Bitterness, anger, clamor, malice, slander. All forms of abuse would fail to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. A third thing uh, that we don't learn necessarily from this immediate context of the passage, but that we can learn from the broader reading of Scripture, is that there are biblical grounds for divorce. Submission does not mean uh, that, that there are no biblical grounds for divorce. Although divorce is serious and painful and not to be undertaken lightly, there are seriously painful things which happen in our lives which we ought not undertake lightly. There are biblical grounds for divorce which aren't addressed in this passage, so I'm not going to talk about them today because we don't even have time to talk about what we have to talk about today. (laughs) We can ask about it upstairs, though. Again, another plug. Come upstairs. 
one more note to make here before we really get into I know there's a lot of prefatory comments. I, just, I know. If you suspect that you have divorced for unbiblical reasons, or even reading this passage, you, you know the ways that you have damaged your marriage, that you have failed to represent the analogy held up for us in this passage, please know that it is not your faithfulness that holds you fast in God's love. God says that he will not despise a broken and contrite heart. And I invite you to repent and cling again to the promises of God that it is Jesus that holds you fast. So we're going to be talking about marriage, the roles of husbands and wives, submission, and theological imagery. But if you are single, whether you are uh, uh, single, not yet married, uh, if you're a child, uh, if you've been married and divorced or widowed, please, please don't check out of this sermon. Although we will be speaking about marriage, and so it'll be most directly applicable to those of us who are married, uh, this passage is about something profoundly deeper that is applicable to all Christians. It's about being filled with the Holy Spirit at all times and in all aspects of our lives. It is saying that in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, every Christian, whether happily married or unhappily married, divorced, widowed, singled, engaged, every single Christian needs to conform their lives to the most true marriage, the capital M marriage, that all other marriages are just a picture of. Being filled with the Holy Spirit requires all of us to conform our lives to that true marriage, whether we're married or not. And whether we are married or not, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable to us. Whether we are married or not, these verses teach us something profound about how God works in the world and how our lives are to be conformed to His. Okay, I'm done with the qualifiers. We're actually going to get to the text now. I know it was a lot. I just, in, in a passage that is uh, so... Uh, full of, of kind of dangerous pitfalls and confusions, uh, I, I wanted to clear a, a little bit of a path for us. So now as we go into this text, um, I thought of various ways of representing this, you know, in, in, in kind of my classic three, it, it, will, it will be three points today, but my classic three points with like maybe something alliterative where they all start with the same letter or something. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it just really uh, not formal, but, uh, and not academic either, but just tied to the text. I want to look at first the command of wives, next the command of husbands, and then third, the real biblical imagery being portrayed, the capital M marriage. So that's going to be kind of our outline for today for you to kind of follow along with us, but hopefully you'll see us just walk through the text verse by verse. So notice in verse 21 that Paul is saying that all Christians are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in some sense, we need to say, again, context is, is super important. There is a baseline, a core Christian ethic of submission that marks all Christians. It's not just a mark of wives. It is a mark of every single believer in Christ, that they are submissive just like Christ was. It's an ethos that we embody. But Paul doesn't just leave this here with this command. He, he draws it out into particular applications, into marriage, into parenting, and into work. And as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at parenting and work the next couple weeks, but today we're looking at marriage. So the first particular group he focuses on that embodies submission in, in, in a particular relationship is wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's actually quite shocking that in the first century, uh, uh, a male-centered world that Paul speaks to the women first. 
And not only that he speaks to the women first, but he speaks to them with agency. As moral agents, they're responsible to the Lord for their own disposition towards their husbands. It doesn't say that husbands are supposed to make sure that their wives submit to them. It's not what it says. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. We should also notice that it doesn't say here that women in general ought to submit to men, but that wives are to submit to their own husbands, not any husband, their husband. There's a particular bond between a husband and a wife, a particular unity that binds the two together in a unique relationship. That's why we have this thing called marriage, where we stand in front of people and we take vows. It's a unique relationship, a uniquely submissive relationship. So what exactly is submission? Is it just self-denial? Is it uh, repressing sharing any desires for what you have for the world and, and only listening to what your husband's desires for the world are or for your family? Is it never speaking unless spoken to? Spoken to? Absolutely not. The word submission might be a hard word for our English ears. I do think it's the best translation of the original language. But I think that because Paul is talking about marriages working at their best, the kind of submission that he's talking to becomes clear at the very end of our passage in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He uses a, a different word there. If we were to continue reading on through the um, examples that he gives in parenting and also work, we would see other parallel words to these submissive relationships like honor and obey. Submission probably has more to do uh, with respect, honor, uh, than it does with kind of a denial of your own self. But you might say, Zach, our marriages rarely work like they're supposed to. They're rarely working at their best. Do I still have to submit to my husband when he's being awful? And the answer here is tricky. Because when you read this passage, it kind of clearly says yes, with some important caveats. Paul is addressing motivation here. What is your motivation towards submission, respect, and honor towards your own husband? And if you look at verse 22, it says that you are doing it in service to the Lord, as, as to the Lord, not to yourself. You're acknowledging that there is a particular order and role that God has established for genders, and they are not nearly as permissive or as restrictive as sometimes our cultures like to make them, but they exist nonetheless. God-given hierarchical relationships are just that, God-given and hierarchical. And yet, God-given hierarchical relationships allow for protest if the authority is abusing, abdicating, or neglecting their responsibilities. So you might say this, when marriage was given in the Garden of Eden before sin, husbands always loved their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives had no need of protest for author of, of authority because authority was never mishandled and submission came naturally to the good and faithful husband who laid down his needs for the sake of his wife. But in a post-fall world, things are radically different. I'm just going to say this. Wives, you ought to avail yourselves of the modes of protest available to you if your husband is abusive, abdicating, or neglecting. 
There are modes of protest that are respectful and honor without slander and without lies, without passive aggressiveness, without embellishment, modes of protest against um, a relationship that is not functioning as it should. These modes of protest allow you to issue a sisterly call towards holy repentance because your submission to this particular person is a calling by God in order that you might live out a deeper submission to God himself. Now, I'd just like to mention that there are degrees of this, right? This is why it's so, so difficult to apply in any particular, uh, in, in any sort of general sort of speech. What I'm speaking about would probably fall within the normal distribution of marital strife, but then there's the outliers. We're going to talk about those in a second. A normal distribution of marital strife, um, if, a, if a husband is, is sinning against his wife in his anger. There are uh, other places in Scripture that speak about how we are supposed to address sins done against us, like in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, of course, you know, this isn't speaking about the marriage relationships. Things are going to get messy in there along degrees of this process. The mode of protest when we are sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ is applicable to all Christians, even Christians in marriage. Sin is not allowed to reign free in marriages between Christians any more than sin is allowed to reign free between any believers. We are all conforming our lives to a more true story. Now, this would be the, the basic mode of protest available within that, that normal distribution that I was talking about. However, there are some sins that are outside of those normal distributions. There are some acts of aggression wherein modes of protest must be much more decisive, forceful, and extreme, as in it probably requires leaving. And in fact, respecting and honoring your husband in that moment might actually be protecting him from greater sin, maybe protecting him from his own children. What about this last phrase in verse 24, wives submit in everything to your husbands? Does it really mean in everything? And again, I'm just like, you, you, you can read. <laughs> what do you want me to say? It says in everything. It's God's word. It's what it means. But I, I hope to clarify it in this way. It means that by virtue of your calling to holy matrimony, by virtue of your one flesh union, every area of your life must involve consideration of your husband, his respect and his honor, for you are not your own. Of course, you belong to the Lord first and foremost. That is, that is the highest priority. But in Christian marriage, you've also been given to another to have and to hold, to love and to cherish until death do you part. Everything, richer or poorer, better or worse, is now shared. Not one aspect of your life can be considered without the other person. This is going to apply to husbands later. In fact, we're just going to go there. There isn't just instructions to wives in this passage. We're going to move on to our second point. There's also instructions to husbands. Husbands, by virtue of their God-given calling, are to be filled with the Holy Spirit by loving their wives as Christ loved the church in verse 25. You might say that the call to husbands is no less daunting than the call to wives, um, and it is impossible, really, to love like Jesus. I mean, just think about that statement for a minute, and then think about people who would boldly say, like, yes, I love like Jesus. And you'd be like, 
Really? You, sh you sure about that? Do you know how Jesus loved? He gave up his life for the very people who hated him, who spit on him, who disobeyed his every command, who promised to stand by him and fled in terror when the moment came. And in fact, when you read through scripture, uh, God describes his relationship to his people in a variety of ways, but one analogy that he uses is actually an unfaithful wife. Like a wife that has left, slept around, and God goes to rescue and purchase back. That's how Jesus loves the church. Sometimes husbands read this passage, specifically the verse wives submit to their husbands, um, and they think something along the lines of this. They think that it means that their desires are the highest priority, like their desires are always going to win out as long as they don't express those uh, in any sort of sinful way. You know, it's like they're, they're way to the highway. They might do something like this. They make career decisions or family decisions to move their families to, I don't know, a Caribbean island <laughs> without consulting their wives at all. The expectation is that the announcement will be made and submitted to. And the assumption that they're making in their own minds is that they have clearly given up their own selfishness and prioritized their wife's interests above their own name, their own profits, their own promotion schedules etc. It's astonishing how often I can hear these verses used by husbands to justify these sorts of behaviors. Husbands, if you believe the headship that Paul is talking about here means not consulting your wife about your joined future, I think you have profoundly misunderstood the analogy at play in these passages. Jesus loves us more than his own life. He never used the church as a means of self-fulfillment, nor did he neglect her for his own self-advancement. He loved her as his own body, it says in verse 28. Remember how wives now have to consider submission, respect, and honor in every area of their lives? Well, now you, husbands, must consider love of your wife in everything. There is not one area of your life over which love of your wife does not lay claim. Every single decision, every single move is now radically altered by the fact that your life has been physically united to another. One flesh. Husbands, when you neglect your wife, when you choose yourself over her, when you make passive-aggressive comments, when you walk away when she's talking, when you jokingly belittle her agency and intelligence, when you abdicate responsibility as an agent of marriage, you harm yourself. I wonder if you've ever seen people content with harming themselves. One example I tend to see that stands out most clearly to me is, is chain smokers. They're in full acknowledgement that what they're doing is causing them harm, and they willfully do it anyway. Now, I'm, I'm just going to make some caveats here. I'm using this as an example. I, I recognize that there are some people um, who are remorsefully addicted, and they're crying out for deliverance. Uh, I'm not talking about these people. I'm talking about the people who couldn't care less, right, one way or the other. They're like, I know it's going to kill me. I'm going to do it anyway. They're without remorse. One day their lungs will, so to speak, divorce their bodies. The self-harm will come due. It will not be able to sustain it. Now, I do want to be sensitive. I understand that smoking is often a coping mechanism that is developed because of difficult things that we've experienced in our life, a way to cope with the, the sinful brokenness of the world. And I'm not trying to castigate those 
um, who, who struggle with smoking. But if I can draw the analogy back to husbands, husbands, if you have a destructive habit of neglecting care for your wife, even if they are coping mechanisms that you learned from a bad family background, you are not excused from transformation in Christ. If you were to go back in our passages, you would read Paul saying something like this, the thief is no longer to steal but to work. And if the thief is no longer to steal but to work, then the husband needs to lay down addictions and old coping mechanisms to avoid closing himself off to his wife to truly love her like he loves his own body. Verse 29 says, nourish and cherish. And husbands, I hope this doesn't sound too outdated. Um, I know that I know that husbands are not always uh, primarily the breadwinners, and I know that there are plenty of wives who really truly find fulfillment um, in, in kind of the homemaking, uh, but sometimes I find the expectation from some men, especially those who are primarily the breadwinners, that their wife's job is to make sure that the house is perfectly clean and dinner fresh out of the oven as soon as they arrive home. So some husbands might feel that communicating this uh, without sin and in a calm tone uh, to their wives, uh, seemingly kind and tenderhearted, uh, they believe that they are loving their wives aright. And you know, expressing our desires for what we would like to see in our marriage is never wrong, right? I just talked about this with wives, and it's not wrong for husbands either. But if the conversation ends with kind of vague overtones of submission, I do have to wonder whether or not husbands are really truly nourishing and cherishing their wives. Because often the sentiment I hear most uh, comes, comes from uh, families with small children. Uh, and maybe it particularly circles around, you know, the mess in the house. And, and can we just all be honest for a second? If you have small children, that's just scratch, if you have any children at all, <laughs> your house will never ever look like it did before you have kids or after they're gone. Just, just never. I'm an adult man. I just this last week went to my parents' house, and I'm sure if you were to ask them, they'd be like, my house was messier because my son was there. Husbands, in that moment, nourishing and cherishing your life probably looks more like dying to your own desires and picking up a broom. You might feel the need to express this desire for a cleaner house, and that, that's fine. <laughs> but the way that you might approach that in nourishment and cherishment of your wife is going to, have to look radically different, more like a death to yourself and how to move forward together than an authoritative declaration. You might ask yourself these questions of whether or not you're really nourishing and cherishing, whether you're really laying down your needs for hers, whether you're really loving her like Jesus loved the church. And just just hold on to that imagery of how Jesus loved the church. And ask yourself, is that, is that what I'm doing in this moment? Husbands, I'm, I'm also married, and I'm right there with you. We don't love our wives like Jesus loved the church. Maybe we are moderately be better than our pagan society, but our pagan society can't even define what marriage is anymore. It's not good enough. The analogy set for us, the standard, is so much greater than we could ever achieve. Wives are to submit, respect, honor their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Uh, and there's one more general point I'd like to make uh, before I move on about this. And I'm, I'm just borrowing this directly uh, from a pastor that I look up to a lot. 
Um, his name is Brian Habig. Uh, he is in Greenville, South Carolina. He's actually at the church that Jeff uh, works at now. Um, great, great pastor. Uh, and he talks about the temptation in marriage in particular is to hold out on these things until the other party does what they're supposed to do. Wife, I'll love you when you submit. Husband, I'll respect you when you love me. As if it was your job, husbands or wives, and in your authority to make that happen. But this pastor, Pastor Habig, makes it abundantly clear that neither party is tasked with the enforcement over the other. This pastor says nothing about that. It gives instructions to wives and instructions to husbands, motivations for how to act and live in the world. Not agency for enforcement. And I think the reason that Paul can do this in this particular passage is because as he's built the foundation theologically for Christian marriage, he's saying the ideal set forth is that both of these people are working towards the same end. They are conforming their lives to the image of Christ. Both of them are on board with God's word. And so the last little asterisk I'm going to say is that when marriage isn't marked by that, it is a significant challenge. We have to go to other places in the scripture, which I don't have uh, time to do today, uh, to explain how, how Christians are to uh, act in what we might call an unequally yoked marriage, where one person is a believer or one is not, or where one is walking away from the faith uh, and one is not. Um, those are all good and right questions, and so I want to acknowledge that they're there. But for all of us in this room, sitting here, hearing God's word, saying we're submitting to God's word, all of our responsibilities is to conform our lives to the image of Christ. And in Christian marriage, this looks a particular way. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives. Now, the analogy at play in our passage uh, really comes into uh, its fullness in verses 31 and 32 when Paul is quoting from Genesis 2. What Paul is doing here is eye-opening because God didn't just co-opt marriage as an example of Christ's relationship to the church. And this is, this is really important. It's not like God was in heaven and he's like, oh, they're getting married. You know what that actually looks like? That looks like what Jesus is going to do with the church. What Paul is doing here is saying that's actually the opposite. It's saying God, when he created everything, so there's actually a mystery that they're never going to be able to understand because it's just, it's beyond them. There's a mystery that they're not going to be able to understand of my son's relationship with the church. And so I'm going to give them an analogy. I'm going to give them marriage. See, marriage, sometimes we read these verses and we're like, this mystery is profound. And we're like, I don't know, maybe it's just husbands. Husbands are like, yeah, it is. Marriage is so mysterious. Uh, but really, marriage is not that mysterious to us. Jesus' relationship to the church is. Marriage has been around and can be found throughout all human cultures for all time, because that's how God made it from creation. To the extent that cultures have neglected biblical marriages, to the extent that they have rebelled against the created order, what needed to be revealed to us wasn't marriage. Marriage was kind of innate. What needed to be revealed to us was Jesus' relationship to the church. It had to be explained, taught, shown, and the closest God-given analogy that we have to that relationship is marriage. And I want, please, please do not misunderstand me. If you are single, divorced, widowed, married people aren't experiencing some profound revelation of mystery that is exclusive to them. They are living broken testimonies to a much greater reality that we all participate in. The capital M, marriage. 
Our lowercase m marriages are God-given for the whole body of Christ to testify in a particular way to the capital M marriage that is permanent and forever, not till death do you part. Every single Christian is trying to conform the entirety of their lives to this person outside of themselves. Do you know how to be full of the Holy Spirit? You conform your life to Christ's image. See, Paul was saying there's only one marriage in all of history that uh, experienced and lived these commands in their fullness. Our Old Testament reading in in Genesis chapter 2 described uh, the creation of Adam and Eve, and they're they're given in marriage. And we left off uh, in in, uh, 24. They're both naked and unashamed. They lived in perfect unity, perfect submission, perfect love. But do you know how long this lasted, biblically speaking? One verse. One verse. The very next verse says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say? And when the man and the woman took the fruit and they ate, they ceased to bear God's image in a particular way. And something profound happened. They no longer had God's spirit of life within them the same way, but they spiritually died in that moment. They became darkened. They were no longer conformed to the image of God. And in many ways, the serpent is asking us the same question today. In all of our lives, single, widowed, happily married, unhappily married, did God really say? No matter how successful we are in conforming our lives to the one outside of ourselves, no matter how successful we are in our marriages of loving each other like we should, we're always driven back time and time again to the greater and more true marriage that there was one who loved us enough to rescue us. He loved us enough to lay down his life for ours. He loved us enough to wash away our disrespect, our self-harm, our slander behind each other's backs, how we talk about each other with our friends, our failure to love each other like our own bodies. He loved us enough to give us his spirit again. The spirit that was lost in the Garden of Eden has now been purchased again by the true and faithful husband and given to breathe life inside. The greater truth, the greater reality, the greater mystery that has been revealed is that we, all Christians, are in a perfect marriage. Or or maybe a way to say it, we are in a marriage that is being perfected by the love of another. Jesus Christ has redeemed his church is sanctifying and washing us by the power of his spirit so that he may present himself, present us to himself without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. And as we live in this story, as we conform our lives to it, it has untold implications. It has untold implications in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our work. But it is in living out these implications that we are filled with the Holy Spirit day by day. And it is far more mundane, far more regular, far more quiet, and frankly, far more difficult than the spectacular, showy ways that we sometimes experience in our lives. The regular operation of God's Spirit in us, slowly chipping away at the hearts of stone to give us hearts of flesh, to love others like Christ did. This is where we were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the ways that we as a church submit to Christ by doing what he commands is by coming to this table where we are fed with his very body and his very blood. 
And the Bible tells us that this meal is supposed to be a foretaste, like an appetizer. And, it's, you know, I mean, you've, you've had this before. It's just like a little less than an appetizer. <laughs> kind of gets stuck in your teeth, you know, and it's like it just barely wets you, throw on the way down. You're like, I didn't, I didn't even swallow anything. A little appetizer of a wedding feast. Because the imagery at the end of the Bible is that this wedding is going to come to its fullness. But we will see each other face to face with unveiled faces. And this capital M marriage will be realized when we together as the church will be united to Christ's body. Because it's easy to forget, it's easy to lose sight. We're so easily lose hope in the midst of our day-to-day lives, in the midst of our day-to-day marriages, in the midst of our day-to-day parenting, in our midst of our day-to-day work. We lose sight of the ultimate realities that are at play in our world. And so Jesus gave us this meal to say, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. The night that Jesus was betrayed when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. This meal is a declaration that we are conforming our lives to Jesus's. And so this meal Uh, is for those Christians who have made that declaration and been united to Jesus in baptism. Uh, If that is not true for you, we are so glad that you're here and we would love for you to partake of this meal, but we don't want you to declare with your outward actions something that is not an inward reality. The Bible actually says that that is dangerous. It can make you, uh, uh, there's dangerous repercussions for these actions. Because this meal is instituted by Jesus, it is his. It's not mine, it's not Trinity Church's, it's not our denominations, it belongs to him, and he has the authority over what power it delivers or what judgment it brings. So if you are a Christian, um, baptized and in good standing in a church that proclaims the gospel, this table is for you, we welcome you to it. You don't have to be a member at our church, uh, just a member of Christ Jesus. If you're not, we'd ask you to refrain from this table. Come and partake another day, make use of the prayer in your bulletin, talk to myself, Kyle, or any of our uh, staff members about it. We would love to answer any questions that you have there. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down um, this center aisle. Uh, If you're on the left-hand side, you're going to go that way, uh, to that table over there. Uh, And I believe that gluten-free is available at that table only. So if you require gluten-free, they also have regular bread over there, but you're going to need to go that way. Um, There is also red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Our God and our King, you loved us more than we could possibly imagine. Even the best examples of marriage that we have ever seen in front of us pale in comparison to the love that you have showed us, the love that you show us and declare for us again in this meal, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. We thank you for this love and we thank you for your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements to their spiritual use to tell us again the most true story that there ever was, that we are loved beyond imagining. Allow this meal to empower us to conform our lives and even our marriages into love for one another. Allow us to look to this meal, to its significance, Christ's body and blood for us, as the motivation for doing that which is so mundane, so regular, and so humbling. And and Holy Spirit, might we find you there and recognize that it is in these moments that we feel your outpouring love within us. Amen.